Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Anne of Green Gables. But before that, take some time to put the day behind you. Find a cozy spot in bed, pulling your blankets around you and resting your head heavily on your pillow. Imagine yourself sinking into your mattress and release any hold you have currently on any part of your body. Clear your mind, take a nice deep breath into your belly, feel your tummy fill with air, and when you exhale, let it all go. Once more, inhale and exhale. Lovely. When we last met, we were introduced to Mrs. Rachel Lynde, the town gossip, who had seen Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables leave in a horse and buggy, dressed in his best suit. Desperate to know where he was going, she made her way to Green Gables herself to find out where he'd gone. Marilla Cuthbert, Matthew's sister, explained he was off to collect an orphan boy from the train station who would live with them and help Matthew with the farm work now he was getting older. Rachel was astonished and left, eager to spread the news around town. Meanwhile, Matthew reached the station only to find a young girl with red hair and big eyes waiting on the platform. The station master informed Matthew that this was the only child there and Matthew was resigned to take her home to allow Marilla to deal with the confusion. And that's where we pick back up tonight with Matthew and the little orphan girl traveling back to Green Gables the latter talking all the while. So lie back and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 2 Matthew Cuthbert is Surprised continued. Isn't it splendid to think of all the things there are to find out about, said Anne, 
It just makes me feel glad to be alive. It's such an interesting world. It wouldn't be half so interesting if we knew all about everything, would it? There'd be no scope for imagination then, would there? But I'm talking too much. People are always telling me I do. Would you rather I didn't talk? If you say so, I'll stop. I can stop when I make my mind up to, although it's difficult. Matthew, much to his own surprise, was enjoying himself. Like most quiet folks, he liked talkative people when they were willing to do the talking themselves and did not expect him to keep up his end of it. But he had never expected to enjoy the society of a little girl. Women were bad enough in all conscience, but little girls were worse. He detested the way they had of sidling past him timidly with sideways glances, as if they expected him to gobble them up at a mouthful if they ventured to say a word. That was the Avonlea type of well-bred little girl. But this freckled witch was very different, and although he found it rather difficult for his slower mind to keep up with her brisk mental processes, he thought that he kind of liked her chatter. So, he said as shyly as usual, Oh, you can talk as much as you like. I don't mind. Oh, I'm so glad, she replied. I know you and I are going to get along together fine. It's such a relief to talk when one wants to, and not to be told that children should be seen and not heard. I've had that said to me a million times if I have once. And people laugh at me because I use big words. But if you have big ideas, you have to use big words to express them, haven't you? Well, now, that seems reasonable, said Matthew. Mrs. Spencer said that my tongue must be hung in the middle, she said. But it isn't. It's firmly fastened at one end. Mrs. Spencer said that your place was named Green Gables. I asked her all about it, and she said that there were trees all around it. I was gladder than ever. I just love trees. And there weren't any at all at the orphanage. Only a few poor, weeny, teeny things out in the front with little whitewashed, cagey things about them. They just looked like orphans themselves, those trees did. It used to make me want to cry to look at them. I used to say to them, Oh, you poor little things. If you were out in a great big woods with other trees all around you and little mosses and june bells, growing over your roots and a brook not far away 
and birds singing in your branches. You could grow, couldn't you? But you can't where you are. I know just exactly how you feel, little trees. I felt sorry to leave them behind this morning. You do get so attached to things like that, don't you? Is there a brook anywhere near Green Cables? I forgot to ask Mrs. Spencer that. Well, now, yes. There's one right below the house, said Matthew. Fancy, she said. It's always been one of my dreams to live near a brook. I never expected I would, though. Dreams don't often come true, do they? Wouldn't it be nice if they did? Oh, but just now I feel pretty nearly perfectly happy. I can't feel exactly perfectly happy because, well, what color would you call this? She twitched one of her long, glossy braids over her thin shoulder and held it up before Matthew's eyes. Matthew was not used to deciding on the tints of ladies' tresses, but in this case, there couldn't be much doubt. It's red, isn't it? He said. The girl let the braid drop back with a sigh that seemed to come from her very toes and to exhale forth all the sorrows of the ages. Yes, it's red, she said resignedly. Now you see why I can't be perfectly happy. Nobody could who has red hair. I don't mind the other things so much. The freckles and the green eyes and my skinniness. I can imagine them away. I can imagine that I have a beautiful rose-leaf complexion and lovely starry violet eyes, but I cannot imagine that red hair away. I do my best. I think to myself, now my hair is a glorious black, black as the raven's wing, but all the time I know it is just plain red and it breaks my heart. It will be my lifelong sorrow. I read of a girl once in a novel who had a lifelong sorrow, but it wasn't red hair. Her hair was pure gold, rippling back from her alabaster brow. What is an alabaster brow? I never could find out. Can you tell me? Well, now... I'm afraid I can't, said Matthew, who was getting a little dizzy. He felt as he had once felt in his rash youth when another boy had enticed him on the merry-go-round at a picnic. Well, whatever it was must have been something nice because she was divinely beautiful. Have you ever imagined what it must feel like to be divinely beautiful, she asked. Well, now, no, I haven't, confessed Matthew ingenuously. 
I have often, she said. Which would you rather be if you had the choice? Divinely beautiful or dazzlingly clever or angelically good? Well, now, I don't know exactly, said Matthew. Neither do I, she said. I can never decide, but it doesn't make much real difference, for it isn't likely I'll ever be either. It's certain I'll never be angelically good. Mrs. Spencer says, Here, she paused and looked out. Oh, Mr. Cuthbert, she said. That was not what Mrs. Spencer had said. Neither had the child tumbled out of the buggy, nor had Matthew done anything astonishing. They had simply rounded a curve in the road and found themselves in the avenue. The avenue, so called by the Newbridge people, was a stretch of road four or five hundred yards long, completely arched over with huge, wide-spreading apple trees, planted years ago by an eccentric old farmer. Overhead was one long canopy of snowy, fragrant bloom. Below the boughs, the air was full of a purple twilight, and far ahead, a glimpse of painted sunset sky shone like a great rose window at the end of a cathedral aisle. Its beauty seemed to strike the child dumb. She leaned back in the buggy, her thin hands clasped before her, her face lifted rapturously to the white splendor above. Even when they had passed out and were driving down the long slope to Newbridge, She never moved or spoke. Still with rapt face, she gazed afar into the sunset west, with eyes that saw visions trooping splendidly across that glowing background. Through Newbridge, a bustling little village where dogs barked at them and small boys hooted, and curious faces peered from the windows. They drove, still in silence. When three more miles had dropped away behind them, the child had not spoken. She could keep silence, it was evident, as energetically as she could talk. I guess you're feeling pretty tired and hungry. Matthew ventured to say at last, accounting for her long visitation of dumbness with the only reason he could think of. But we haven't very far to go now, only another mile. She came out of her reverie with a deep sigh and looked at him with the dreamy gaze of a soul that had been wandering afar, star-led. Oh, Mr. Cuthbert, she whispered. That place we came through 
That white place. What was it? Well, now you must mean the avenue, said Matthew, after a few moments' profound reflection. It's a kind of pretty place. Pretty? Oh, pretty doesn't seem the right word to use. Nor beautiful, either. They don't go far enough, she said. Oh, it was wonderful. Wonderful. It's the first thing I ever saw that couldn't be improved upon by imagination. It just satisfies me here. She put one hand on her breast. It made a strange, funny ache, and yet it was a pleasant ache. Did you ever have an ache like that, Mr. Cuthbert? Well, no, I just can't recollect that I ever had, he said. Oh, I have it lots of time, whenever I see anything royally beautiful she said. But they shouldn't call that lovely place the Avenue. There is no meaning in a name like that. They should call it, let me see, the White Way of Delight. Isn't that a nice imaginative name? When I don't like the name of a place or a person, I always imagine a new one and always think of them so. There was a girl at the orphanage whose name was Hepzibah Jenkins, but I always imagined her as Rosalia de Vere. Other people may call that place the Avenue, but I shall always call it the White Way of Delight. Have we really only another mile to go before we get home? I'm glad. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry because this drive has been so pleasant, and I'm always sorry when pleasant things end. Something still pleasanter may come after, but you can never be sure, and it's so often the case that it isn't pleasanter. That has been my experience anyhow. But I'm glad to think of getting home. You see, I've never had a real home since I can remember. It gives me that pleasant ache again just to think of coming to a really, truly home. Oh, isn't that pretty? They had driven over the crest of a hill. Below them was a pond, looking almost like a river, so long and winding it was. A bridge spanned it midway, and from there to its lower end, where an amber-hued belt of sand hills shut it in from the dark blue gulf beyond, the water was a glory of many shifting hues. The most spiritual shadings of crocus and rose and ethereal green with other elusive tintings for which no name has ever been found. Above the bridge, the pond ran up into fringing groves of fir and maple, 
and lay all darkly translucent in their wavering shadows. Here and there, a wild plum leaned out from the bank like a white-clad girl tiptoeing to her own reflection. From the marsh at the head of the pond came the clear, mournfully sweet chorus of the frogs. There was a little grey horse peering around a white apple orchard on a slope beyond, and although it was not yet quite dark, a light was shining from one of its windows. That's Barry's pond, said Matthew. Oh, I don't like that name either, she replied. I shall call it, now let me see, the Lake of Shining Waters. Yes, that's the right name for it. I know because of the thrill. When I hit on a name that suits exactly, it gives me a thrill. Do things ever give you a thrill? Matthew ruminated. Well, now, yes, it always kind of gives me a thrill to see those ugly white grubs that spade up in the cucumber beds. I hate the look of them. Oh, I, I don't think that can be exactly the same kind of a thrill. Do you think it can? She said. There doesn't seem to be much connection between grubs and the lakes of shining waters, does there? But why do other people call it Barry's Pond? I reckon because Mr. Barry lives up there in that house, said Matthew. Orchard Slope's the name of his place. If it wasn't for that big bush behind it, you could see Green Gables from here. We have to go over the bridge and round by the road, so it's near half a mile further. Has Mr. Barry any little girls? Well, not so very little either, about my size, she asked. He's got one about eleven, said Matthew. Her name is Diana. The girl had a long indrawing of breath. What a perfectly lovely name, she said. Well, now I don't know said Matthew. I'd rather Jane or Mary or some sensible name like that. But when Diana was born, there was a schoolmaster boarding there and they gave him the naming of her and he called her Diana. I wish there had been a schoolmaster like that around when I was born then, she said. Oh, here we are at the bridge. I'm going to shut my eyes tight. I'm always afraid going over bridges. I can't help imagining that perhaps just as we get to the middle, they'll crumple up like a jackknife and nip us. So I shut my eyes. But I always have to open them for all when I think we're getting near the middle. Because you see, if the bridge did crumple up, I'd want to see it crumple. What a jolly rumble it makes. 
I always like the rumble part of it. Isn't it splendid there are so many things to like in this world? There, we're over. Now I'll look back. Good night, dear lake of shining waters. I always say good night to the things I love, just as I would people. I think they like it. That water looks as if it was smiling at me. When they had driven further up the hill and around the corner, Matthew said, We're pretty near home now. That's Green Gables over there. Oh, don't tell me, she said breathlessly, catching at his partially raised arm and shutting her eyes that she might not see his gesture. Let me guess. I'm sure I'll guess right. She opened her eyes and looked about her. They were on the crest of a hill. The sun had set some time since, but the landscape was still clear in the mellow afterlight. To the west, a dark church spire rose up against a marigold sky. Below was a little valley, and beyond, a long, gently rising slope with snug farmsteads scattered along it. From one to another, the child's eye darted, eager and wistful. At last, they lingered on one way to the left, far back from the road, dimly white with blossoming trees in the twilight of the surrounding woods. Over it, in the stainless southwest sky, a great crystal-white star was shining like a lamp of guidance and promise. That's it, isn't it? She said, pointing. Matthew nudged the reins on the sorrel's back delightedly. Well now, you've guessed it, but I reckon Mrs. Spencer described it so you could tell. No, she didn't. She really didn't, the girl said. All she said might just as well have been about most of those other places. I hadn't any real idea what it looked like, but as soon as I saw it, I felt it was home. Oh, it seems as if I must be in a dream. Do you know, my arm must be black and blue from the elbow up, for I've pinched myself so many times today. Every little while, a horrible, sickening feeling would come over me, and I'd be so afraid it was all a dream. Then I'd pinch myself to see if it was real until suddenly I remembered that even supposing it was only a dream, I'd better go on dreaming for as long as I could. So I stopped pinching. But it is real, and we're nearly home. With a sigh of rapture, she relapsed into silence. Matthew stirred uneasily. He felt glad it would be Marilla and not he he would have to tell this waif of the world that the home she longed for was not to be hers after all. 
They drove over Lynn's Hollow, where it was already quite dark, but not so dark that Mrs. Rachel could not see them from her window vantage. They continued up the hill and into the long lane of Green Gables. By the time they arrived at the house, Matthew was shrinking from the approaching revelation with an energy he did not understand. It was not of Marilla or himself he was thinking, or of the trouble this mistake was probably going to make for them, but of the child's disappointment. When he thought of that rapt light being quenched in her eyes, he had an uncomfortable feeling that he was going to assist at destroying something. The yard was quite dark as they turned into it, and the poplar leaves were rustling silkily all around it. Listen to the trees talking in their sleep, she whispered as he lifted her to the ground. What nice dreams they must have. Then, holding tightly to the carpet bag which contained all her worldly goods, she followed him into the house. Chapter 3 Marilla Cuthbert is Surprised Marilla came briskly forward as Matthew opened the door, but when her eyes fell on the odd little figure in the stiff, ugly dress, with the long braids of red hair and the eager, luminous eyes, she stopped short in amazement. Matthew Cuthbert, who's that? she said. Where's the boy? There wasn't any boy, said Matthew wretchedly. There was only her. He nodded at the child, remembering that he hadn't even asked her name. No boy, but there must have been a boy, insisted Marilla. We sent word to Mrs. Spencer to bring a boy. Well, she didn't, said Matthew. She brought her. I asked the station master. I had to bring her home. She couldn't be left there no matter where the mistake had come in. Well, this is a pretty piece of business, said Marilla. During this dialogue, the child had remained silent, her eyes roving from one to the other, all the animation fading out of her face. Suddenly, she seemed to grasp the full meaning of what had been said. Dropping her precious carpet bag, she sprang forward a step and clasped her hands. You don't want me, she said. You don't want me because I'm not a boy. I might have expected it. Nobody ever did want me. I might have known it was all too beautiful to last. I might have known nobody really did want me. Oh, what shall I do? I'm going to burst into tears. And burst into tears she did, sitting down on a chair by the table, flinging her arms out upon it 
and burying her face in them, she proceeded to cry stormily. Marilla and Matthew looked at each other. Neither of them knew what to say or do. Finally, Marilla stepped lamely into the breach. Well, well, there's no need to cry so about it, said Marilla. Yes, there is need. The child raised her head quickly, revealing a tear-stained face and trembling lips. You would cry too if you were an orphan and had come to a place you thought was going to be home and found that they didn't want you because you weren't a boy. Oh, this is the most tragical thing that ever happened to me. Something like a reluctant smile, rather rusty from long disuse, mellowed Marilla's grim expression. Well, don't cry anymore, she said. We're not going to turn you out of doors tonight. We'll have to stay here until we can investigate this affair. What's your name? The child hesitated for a moment. Can you please call me Cordelia? She said eagerly. Call you Cordelia? Is that your name? Asked Marilla. No, it's not exactly my name, but I would love to be called Cordelia. It's such a perfectly elegant name, she said. I don't know what on earth you mean. Marilla replied. If Cordelia isn't your name, what is? Anne Shirley reluctantly spoke the owner of that name. But oh, please do call me Cordelia. It can't matter much to you what you call me, if I'm only going to be here a little while, can it? And Anne is such an unromantic name. Unromantic fiddlesticks, said the unsympathetic Marilla. Anne is a real, good, plain, sensible name. You've no need to be ashamed of it. Oh, I'm not ashamed of it, explained Anne. Only I like Cordelia better. I've always imagined that my name was Cordelia. At least, I always have of late years. When I was young, I used to imagine it was Geraldine, but I like Cordelia better now. But if you call me Anne, please call me Anne spelled with an E. What difference does it make how it's spelled? Asked Marilla with another rusty smile as she picked up the teapot. Oh, it makes such a difference. It looks so much nicer, said Anne. When you hear a name pronounced, can't you always see it in your mind just as if it was printed out? I can, and Anne, A-N-N, looks dreadful. But A-N-N-E looks so much more distinguished. If you'll only call me Anne spelt with an E, 
I shall try to reconcile myself to not being called Cordelia. Very well then. Anne spelled with an E. Can you tell us how this mistake came to be made? We sent word to Mrs. Spencer to bring us a boy. Were there no boys at the orphanage? Marilla asked. Oh, yes. There was an abundance of them, said Anne. But Mrs. Spencer said distinctly that she wanted a girl about eleven years old, and the matron said she thought I would do. You don't know how delighted I was. I couldn't sleep all last night for joy. Oh, she added reproachfully, turning to Matthew. Why didn't you tell me at the station that you didn't want me and leave me there? If I hadn't seen the white way of delight and the lake of shining waters, it wouldn't be so hard. What does she mean? questioned Marilla, staring at Matthew. She's just referring to some conversation we had on the road, said Matthew hastily. I'm going out to put the mare in, Marilla. Have tea ready when I come back. Did Mrs. Spencer bring anybody over besides you? Continued Marilla when Matthew had gone out. She brought Lily Jones for herself. Lily is only five years old and she's very beautiful and had nut brown hair. If I was beautiful and had nut brown hair, would you keep me? Asked Anne. No. Marilla answered. We want a boy to help Matthew on the farm. A girl would be of no use to us. Take off your hat. I'll lay it in your bag on the hall table. Anne took off her hat meekly. Matthew came back presently and they sat down to supper, but Anne could not eat. In vain, she nibbled at the bread and butter and pecked at the crabapple preserve out of the little scalloped dish by her plate. She really did not make any headway at all. You're not eating anything, said Marilla, eyeing her as if it were a serious shortcoming. Anne sighed. I can't. I'm in the depths of despair. Can you eat when you were in the depths of despair? I've never been in the depths of despair, so I can't say, responded Marilla. Weren't you? Well, did you ever try to imagine you were in the depths of despair? Asked Anne. No, I didn't, Marilla replied. Then I don't think you can understand what it's like, Anne said. It's a very uncomfortable feeling indeed. When you try to eat, a lump comes right up in your throat and you can't swallow anything, not even if it was a chocolate caramel. I had one chocolate caramel two years ago and it was simply delicious. I've often dreamed since then I had a lot of chocolate caramels, but I always wake up just when I'm going to eat them. 
I do hope you won't be offended because I can't eat. Everything is extremely nice, but still, I cannot eat. I guess she's tired, said Matthew, who hadn't spoken since his return from the barn. Best put her to bed, Marilla. Marilla had been wondering where Anne should be put to bed. She had prepared a couch in the kitchen chamber for the desired and expected boy, but although it was neat and clean, it did not seem quite the thing to put a girl there somehow, but the spare room was out of the question for such a stray waif, so there remained only the east gable room. Marilla lighted a candle and told Anne to follow her, which Anne spiritlessly did, taking her hat and carpet bag from the hall table as she passed. The hall was fearsomely clean, the little gable chamber in which she presently found herself seemed still cleaner. Marilla set the candle on a three-legged, three-cornered table and turned down the bedclothes. I suppose you have a nightgown? She questioned. Anne nodded. Yes, I have two. The matron of the orphanage made them for me. They're fearfully skimpy. There is never enough to go around in an orphanage, so things are always skimpy, at least in a poor orphanage like ours. I hate skimpy nightdresses, but one can dream just as well in them as lovely trailing ones with frills around the neck. That's one consolation. Well, undress quick as you can and go to bed. I'll come back in a few minutes for the candle, said Marilla. I don't trust you to put it out yourself likely set the place on fire. When Marilla had gone, Anne looked around her wistfully. The whitewashed walls were so painfully bare and staring that she thought they must ache over their own bareness. The floor was bare too, except for a round braided mat in the middle such as Anne had never seen before. In one corner was the bed, a high, old-fashioned one with four dark, low-turned posts. In the other corner was the aforesaid three-corner table adorned with a fat, red velvet pincushion, hard enough to turn the point of the most adventurous pin. Above it hung a little six-by-eight mirror. Midway between table and bed was the window, with an icy white muslin frill over it, and opposite was the washstand. The whole apartment was of a rigidity not to be described in words, but which sent a shiver to the very marrow of Anne's bones. With a sob, she hastily discarded her garments, put on the skimpy nightgown, and sprang into bed.
where she burrowed face downward into the pillow and pulled the clothes over her head. When Marilla came up for the light, various skimpy articles of raiment scattered most untidily over the floor, and a certain tempestuous appearance of the bed were the only indications of any presence save her own. She deliberately picked up Anne's clothes, placed them neatly on a prim yellow chair, and then, taking up the candle, went over to the bed. Good night, she said, a little awkwardly, but not unkindly. Anne's white face and big eyes appeared over the bedclothes with a startling suddenness. How can you call it a good night when you know it must be the very worst night I've ever had, she said. Then she dived down into invisibility again. Marilla went slowly down to the kitchen and proceeded to wash the supper dishes. Matthew was smoking, a sure sign of perturbation of mind. He seldom smoked, for Marilla set her face against it as a filthy habit, but at certain times and seasons he felt driven to it. And then Marilla winked at the practice, realizing that a mere man must have some vent for his emotions. Well, this is a pretty kettle of fish, she said. This is what comes of sending word instead of going ourselves. Richard Spencer's folks have twisted that message somehow. One of us will have to drive over and see Mrs. Spencer tomorrow, that's certain. This girl will have to be sent back to the orphanage. Yes, I suppose so, said Matthew reluctantly. You suppose so, said Marilla. Don't you know it? Well, now, she's a real nice little thing, Marilla. It's kind of a pity to send her back when she's so set on staying here, he replied. Matthew Cuthbert, you don't mean to say you think we ought to keep her. Marilla's astonishment could not have been greater if Matthew had expressed a predilection for standing on his head. Well, no, I suppose not. Not exactly, said Matthew, uncomfortably driven into a corner for his precise meaning. I suppose... He could hardly expect to keep her. I should say not. What good would she be to us? Marilla asked. We might be some good to her, said Matthew, suddenly and unexpectedly. Matthew Cuthbert, I believe that child has bewitched you. I can see as plain as plain that you want to keep her, said Marilla. Well, now she's a real interesting little thing, persisted Matthew. You should have heard her talk coming from the station. Oh, she can talk fast enough. I saw that at once. It's nothing in her favor, either. 
said Marilla. I don't like children who have so much to say. I don't want an orphan girl. And if I did, she isn't the style I'd pick out. There's something I don't understand about her. No, she's got to be dispatched straight away back to where she came from. I could hire a local boy to help me, said Matthew, and she'd be company for you. I'm not suffering for company, said Marilla shortly, and I'm not going to keep her. Well, now, it's just as you say, of course, Marilla, said Matthew, rising and putting his pipe away. I'm going to bed. To bed went Matthew, and to bed, when she had put her dishes away, went Marilla, frowning most reluctantly. And upstairs, in the east gable, a lonely, heart-hungry, friendless child cried herself to sleep.